Zoe 3 Podcast. I've got Reggie to my left. Hey. I'm Robert. And across the table, we've got Dr. Canal. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Yes. Canal. Repeat. Thank you for bringing me back. MRI tech out there who doesn't know who you are. So, But if you would, we all know who you are as far as you know MRI goes. But just tell us a little about yourself outside of MRI, your family life, your hobbies, those sort of things. Wow. Um... I think in 40 years of radiology, nobody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> I feel honored. <laughs> um, I have the most wonderful family in the world, a wife and six children, thank God, and 18 grandchildren, thank God, and they live in six different cities all around the world, and I find myself interested in lots and lots of hobbies. I like weightlifting. I like marathon running. I like skiing. I like bicycling. I'm a pilot. I'm a violinist. And I'm a photographer of sorts. I love animal wildlife photography especially. And I think that's about it for, for wow. now. Nothing easy, though. Huh? <laughs> I'm guessing you're a Steelers fan, too. It's actually, I think, um, one of the official laws of the United States is you can't live in Pittsburgh and not be a Steeler fan. <laughs> it's it's, yeah, it's mandatory. you labeled an outcast for sure. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for joining us. It's yes. an honor, truly, truly. Um, and we're on the road. We're in Pittsburgh. We're talking about residual gadolinium that's retained um, and how it relates to NSF, like NSF being nef nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, um, something I know that you're very aware of, uh, the subject itself. It can be considered controversial as how it's viewed. So if you would just kind of start talking about that. Certainly. Um, it's interesting that we've had gadolinium in usage in the U.S. since June of 1988. And we, in fact, initially we've been treating it for years as one of the safest drugs we've ever used in humans. And I think for the most part it's still true, but um, any drug that we give to anyone has potential for adverse events. So when we talk about safety of gadolinium-based contrast agents, one of the categories of safety that we used to talk about and today is pretty much ignored for some reason is um, immediate adverse events, the things that occur in the first typically hour or two, hives, nausea, vomiting, things, things of, of that nature. And it can, it can be from minor or irritative to life-threatening, anaphylaxis, anaphylactoid reactions, and how these drugs have that potential and how they differ or how they're similar in, in, in the immediate adverse reactions. And then in 2006, Dr. Grobner first became aware and made the rest of the world aware that um, there is a connection between this unusual disease, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, and um, gadolinium-based contrast agents in patients who had poorly functioning kidneys. Just a generic concept that their kidneys were not working well. And uh, since then, a, a massive amount of work was done specifically studying nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. And I'm treating that as a different category from the immediate adverse events because NSF would be something that would take days or weeks. There are always articles that love to say, sometimes even years after administration. Um, personally, I don't accept that. I think that um, I think it's more likely that we're missing data than it actually developed years after the last administration, but it is a possibility, so we'll leave it out there. And certainly, there are several articles that claim that it could be as much as years. Um, speaking to the people that are most involved in it and speaking to the people that define the disease, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, Dr. Sean Cowper, a dermatopathologist, um, the exquisite majority will be symptomatic within the first few days or weeks of its being administered, but not the first few hours. 
So that puts them in a a separate category of adverse event safety issues associated with gadolinium agents as opposed to the immediate type of adverse events. And um, we learned a lot about NSF, and we learned that it's associated with some of these drugs much more than with others. And essentially, it's really been associated predominantly with with three drugs, with with, um, Magnavist and with Omniscan and with Optimark. And those three seem to have 99 plus percent of all cases in the world today that have developed after the prior unconfounded administration of a drug. What does that mean? The FDA, I believe, came up with this term, and I think it's a, a very useful one. If a person gets drug A and then gets a disease, they say that's unconfounded. There's a drug, there's a disease, there's a direct connection of some sort that they're worried about. If a person gets drug A, three months later they come back and get drug B and then gets a disease, they call that confounded. Was a disease because of A or B or both? (coughs) That's referred to as a confounded administration. Unconfounded NSF developing after the prior unconfounded administration of a gadolinium-based contrast agent, 99% are with those three drugs. An amazing thing occurred within a heartbeat, within just a few years, depending on who you read, 2009, 2010, certainly by 2010, there were almost no new cases of NSF. Today, we're getting single-digit cases, and almost all of them are cases of patients that should not have had these drugs administered to them. So the drug, the the association was made in 2006, and within three, four years, the disease pretty much went away because society identified the relationship thanks to Dr. Grosvenor first revealing it to all of us, making the observation, promulgating it immediately throughout the radiologic community, internationally, and making adjustments accordingly. What adjustments were made? We had to redefine whether we were going to give a contrast agent in the first place. If we were going to give a contrast agent, we had to choose which one we wanted to give. You couldn't treat them interchangeably. And whether we liked it or not, we had to check renal function because this was a disease that was pretty much essentially only seen if the kidneys were close to shutting down. It could be acute renal failure, it could be chronic renal failure, but it was going to be seen mostly with, out of five stages of chronic kidney disease, it was seen mostly with stage five and a few stage four and low single digits stage three. Just as we got our, ourselves wrapped around that problem, mm-hmm. <laughs> 2010, 2011 is pretty much eradicated. In 2013, a new issue came up, and Dr. Kanda came up and found from Japan that there was a signal change in the brain of patients that received gadolinium-based contrast agents. Fast, 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 fast forward. And let's take from 2013 to today and super summarize. So what they found was that some of the gadolinium that we're administering to our patients is staying in the body, in different places in the body, for weeks, months, maybe years. 
an extremely, extremely small amount, but it's not zero. Every single gadolinium-based contrast agent seems to leave something in the body. There's a lot of discussion about the structure of the agent, macrocyclic versus linear, ionic versus non-ionic. And there are some truisms and generalizations that we can get away with making. In general, macrocyclic agents tend to leave less in the body than do the linear agents. But within the macrocyclic agents and within the linear agents, there seem to be significant differences on those agents themselves, how much they leave. Is it the macrocyclic that's the ionic? Macrocyclics can be ionic or non-ionic. Okay. Linear agents can be ionic or non-ionic. Okay. Ionic, opposite bonds attract. Ionic seems to be a tighter bond. Macrocyclic seems to be a much tighter bond. Linear is a weaker bond than macrocyclic. Non-ionic is a weaker bond than ionic. The stronger the bond, the, 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 the theory... So non-ionic, linear would be the weakest. Exactly. Non-ionic, linear are optimark and omniscan. That's correct. So having said that, before residual gadolinium was a topic... When it came to nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, NSF, what they theorized was the transmetallation or dechelation theory. And the theory there was that the gadolinium, we know that gadolinium is toxic. Gadolinium is a heavy metal. It's in the lanthanide series. It's an, it's an element. Oxygen, nitrogen, right. potassium, it's an element. But nobody's administering heavy metals to humans. I like to tell my patients that heavy metal in any form is toxic to humanity. I agree. <laughs> so what we do is we take the same gadolinium ion and we tie it up. In medical speak, the suture is ligated. That means you tied it up. So we take a ligand molecule to tie up the gadolinium. And you attach those together in what's referred to as a chelated complex. Chelate, I think it's Greek, and I think it means claw. In any case, so there's a chelated complex of this gadolinium ion and the ligand molecule. And all these different agents out there, all the different competing brands, gadolinium is gadolinium is gadolinium, right? It's, it's just an element. So the gadolinium is identical in all of these agents. What differs and what makes this drug X and this is drug Y and this is competing drug Z is the ligand molecule. If this is caldiamide, then gadolinium with caldiamide becomes omniscan. If this is DTPA, gadolinium and DTPA, we call that magnavist. Do you understand? So it's just the difference in the ligand molecule. So the theory of NSF, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, was that these different agents, the affinity for the ligand molecule, the tightness of that bond, if you will, differed from agent to agent. And as a result of that, if they were to dissociate and it's very, very, very uncommon. It's a very small amount. But like any chemical reaction, it is in equilibrium. And some will stay, the vast majority for every one of these stays bound. But some in equilibrium will be bouncing off. And if it does get released, gadolinium is exquisitely reactive. And it'll find something to attach to. Maybe a phosphate, a carbonate. It'll find something and the theory of transmetallation or dechelation is that if it does separate, 
then this gadolinium will find a phosphate or other molecule, and the two of them will waltz off to wherever phosphate lives, maybe bone, and stay there for years in a reservoir that's just hidden inside bone where it was never meant to go in the first place. It was never designed to biodistribute to bone. It was designed as an extracellular fluid agent. As long as it was attached to its initial ligand, it would be extracellular fluid. The kidneys would then filter it and glomerular filtration out into the urine. But if it's going to get attached to, for example, a phosphate and then find its way into a bone reservoir, it might stay there for months and years and not make it into the kidneys and not get excreted. So who is more likely to have it dissociate and have that happen? Someone in whom you inject it, and then it stays in the body for longer than it was initially designed. Well, why would it stay in the body for longer? Kidney failure. Since the drugs all are these agents that we're discussing for neuroradiologic application were excreted by the kidneys. If the kidneys are not working well, that means that they are still get excreted, but more slowly. So they hang around on the dance floor that is the human being longer, and eventually they may split partners. They may just, if they're there, the longer you wait, the greater the chance for dissociation. With perfectly normal kidneys, we felt, you give the drug, you do the imaging, the kidneys filter them, it's literally in the toilet, you should excuse me, uh, shortly thereafter, and even if it dissociates, who cares, it's now out of the human. Conceptually, the normal kidney patient should not have to worry about it. And the theory was that if you have bad kidneys, especially if they're very poorly functioning kidneys, it sticks around for so long that some of them that dissociate and maybe more permanently in a sense, will stick around in that human body, perhaps in bone, and lead to inflammatory reactions that would eventually lead to what you and I refer to as NSF. And that was a theory of transmetallation, dechelation, dissociation. They all mean the same thing. Do people already have a lower amount of gadolinium in their system? A, a human not, being normally does not have gadolinium in his all. body. If there's uh, gadolinium in your body, you've gotten contrast. A radiologist put it there. Now, there are rare exceptions. Back in the old days, people were making CDs. In the process of making CDs, some gadolinium exposure was there. But the vast majority of us don't have that. An interesting tangent that I've been teaching about since 2014 is that um, we now find gadolinium in our, in our drinking water. Remember I told you it gets excreted by humans in urine. And so it goes from into the sewage and it goes to a sewage treatment plant sewage treatment plant then goes through and recycles gets rid of the solid waste gets rid of things that we don't want in humans filters those out and then returns purified water back into the drinking system um, studies have found that um, as much as 90 percent of the gadolinium that is urinated out is returned is not filtered and is returned into the drinking system. So literally dozens of articles literally have appeared over the past decade showing that in all the major reservoirs of the world, and I do mean of the world, uh, Australia, England, throughout Europe, throughout the United States, San Francisco Bay, Pittsburgh, um, every major reservoir has gadolinium in the drinking water that the levels are rising, the rate at which the levels are rising is increasing. Uh, interestingly, now they're also finding it in the plants, in the reservoirs, and they're now finding it in the animal kingdom of the reservoir, insects. 
So it's now possibly beginning to enter our food supply as well. Now, the amount is very, very small, but it is a clear, extremely noticeable spike in of all the... They constantly check all the rare earth metals, and gadolinium is a very noticeable spike that has occurred in humanity in, in the last few um, decades, and it's directly and specifically traceable to medically administered. In fact... Some of the studies have looked at urban versus rural, and the rural streams don't show it in the water. It's only in the waters of the major medical centers of the world, in the cities that have major medical centers. They've even gone so far in a study that was published about the San Francisco Bay Area. They actually show where they sampled, and those that are closer to the hospital systems have the highest values, and they don't. In fact, to make it really interesting is that they've sampled them by time of day and time of week. And you see the levels go down on Saturdays and Sundays and go up on Mondays, usually in the afternoon. Every day you see that the afternoons, a person gets injected starting in the morning. You wait two, three hours. They start to go to the bathroom, and you see the, the numbers go up in the afternoon. They go down again late evenings, as you would expect the typical patient flow. So we know that these are medically administered gadolinium levels. That having been said, it's not enough to have reached alarm. It's just that people are aware that this is happening. But the answer to your question is that that notwithstanding, normally humans have no exposure to gadolinium other than medically administered. Even this is medically administered initially and now is finding its way back into drinking water. So if we find gadolinium in the biopsy of a human, a radiologist put it there. That's interesting. So someone who is, has, a, let's say, renal issues, right, and they wouldn't normally get IV contrast, but they drink. It's just not enough, right? It's if impossible. they're drinking and they're not getting IV contrast, the gadolinium that we measure in their bodies is what you and I would call background. Uh, not sufficient for us to be concerned about or measure rise. No, not at all. Okay. We'd consider that within normal limits, and it's near the level of quantification, near the smallest level that we can detect. I'm curious what the half-life is. Of? Gadolinium. Like, um, of these contrast agents. Well, they're not radioactive, so I'm sure you don't refer to a radioactive half-life, but you mean biologic half-life. Biologically, yeah. So that's the whole point. Normally, the medically administered gadolinium agents that are used for neuroradiologic application, those have half-lives of 90 to 120 minutes. What that means is that I'm going to inject into that patient um, 14 cc's, and half of that I expect to be in the bladder in the urine, Seven cc's approximately of that 14 in about an hour and a half, two hours. Another two hours later, three and a half cc's. Another two hours later, approximately one and three quarter cc's addition. Do you understand? So it, that's the biologic half-life. But what happens is if that's a unicompartment uh, model, that's where there's only administer it to the extracellular fluid, clear it from the extracellular fluid. But now they're discussing, as we've said, a second compartment. What if there's not a pure extracellular fluid biodistribution? What if some of it is pulled off and sent into the bone? So that half-life is a separate small, 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 small part, and that one may be there for months and years. So there's two different components and two different half-lives. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Interesting. And that's the concern. The concern is that when people have poorly functioning kidneys, it sticks around for longer. More of a dissociated amount might therefore find itself dissociated, re-chelated with something else endogenous in the body, such as phosphate, 
which is abnormally elevated in almost every patient with renal failure, uh -huh. and then it might biodistribute outside the extracellular fluid space and stick around for longer than we had initially designed and go to places we had not intended. All of that theory of dissociation or transmetallation or dechelation existed in the NSF discussion time periods between 2006 and 2013 time frame. That was all attributed to how NSF might have formed. When Dr. Kanda found in 2013 that we're seeing gadolinium in the patient's brains, a few things were startling there. And the number one thing of all that people may not have recognized, but what was the most concerning is that this is even in patients with normal kidneys. It's an extremely small amount, but you did not need poorly functioning kidneys to see gadolinium in the brain. If they got enough of it, it would show up. So this is even with patients with normal renal function. That's one concern. Number two, it seemed initially that it wasn't happening with macrocyclics. It only happened with linears. That doesn't seem to be true either. What we're finding is that every agent leaves some but again, as we started on that discussion before, macrocyclic agents tended to leave less, although there are differences amongst the macrocyclics, it seems. The linear agents tend to leave more, but there are substantial differences amongst the linear agents and how much they leave. Beyond that, what is it that you're leaving? What are you leaving? For example, I injected into my patient gadolinium ligand as a chelated complex. Remember, so what are we detecting in the brains of these patients? Two, three years ago, I would say to you, we don't know. But now we've been able to find that there are three forms of gadolinium, at least, that are being left in humans in their brain and potentially other parts of the body. One form is exactly as you had initially intravenously administered it meaning it's the gadolinium ion together with its ligand molecule, just exactly how you took it out of the bottle and injected it to the patient. That same complex, it's right there. Can you see it? It's right there. That's one possible form. Macrocyclics that leave very little, that's the form that seems to be associated with them. The form as initially administered. That's how tight that bond is, right? The bond is that tight that it seems to still be intact years wow. later. Linear agents have one of three identified forms so far. The first is the same as we just discussed, which is exactly as administered. That same gadolinium with its ligand molecule intact sitting in the brain. That's one of the three forms. Another form is a water-insoluble form. What does that mean? In order for it to be water-insoluble, it's not interacting with water. Well, I certainly did not inject in any of my patients any water-insoluble gadolinium. Look at it. It looks like water, right? right? So in order for it to have been water-insoluble in this patient right now, it had to dissociate and reform with a new complex. That doesn't seem to happen with the macrocyclics. It seems to happen only with the linears. A water-insoluble form is type number two. Type number three is that the gadolinium is somehow associating with some macromolecule, a massive molecule like a protein, albumin, something massive. That doesn't seem to happen with macrocyclics either. That seems to happen only with the linear agents. So let's go through this again. Both the linear agents and the macrocyclics are found 
in the form initially injected at extremely small amounts in the brain. Linears are also found in a water-insoluble form, and they're also found in a form that seems to be associated with some as-of-yet unidentified macromolecules. Now, why am I saying this? Well, the water-insoluble form, stay with me here, is water-insoluble. <laughs> Meaning it doesn't mix with water. Right. And if it doesn't mix with water, it means the water is not going to be interacting with the gadolinium. So it won't have its T1 shortened. So the relaxivity, uh, meaning the ability to shorten T1, the relaxivity of the water insoluble so form is almost certainly extremely poor. Right. And therefore can't be accounting for what they saw on the images in MRI where they're seeing T1 shortening. Wow. The macromolecular association, that would be a powerful T1 shortening. So that may be the form that may be accounting for why we're seeing T1 shortening more with the linear agents than with the macromolecules. Right. Now that we got those out of the way, I have a question to ask you too. I can't, I can't talk with you without testing you, right? <laughs> so here's the question. I have this syringe, and it's going to have gadolinium in it, and it's going to be in one of three forms. It's going to be in the form of the initial drug with its ligand molecule, or it will be dissociated and it will be attached to something that now makes it a water-insoluble form. Or it'll be gadolinium associated with some macromolecule, let's say albumin. Mm -hmm. I have it in this syringe. I'm going to take this syringe and stab you in the head with it. And I'm going to inject one of those three forms in your personal cerebrospinal fluid. <laughs> right into the ventricle. Take an A. Which one do you want? In other words, think of the question for a moment. If you had to have in your cerebrospinal fluid, someone was going to inject one of those three forms, which form would you want injected? Do you hear the question? Right. I, definitely the, I, in this one, I would say the uh, A, like the macrophilic, the way that that one initially... In other words, the initially the first, administered, the initial form administered form yep. that the molecule, the gadolinium with its ligand molecule still intact. If I had to have it in me, I want it still together. Okay, that's what everybody answers. And there's no, there's no right or wrong. Okay. But I want you to understand. <laughs> and Dr. Vogler wrote an article in 1995. Right. 1995. Dang. Where they injected rats with all three macrocyclics and with Magnavist, and with Omniscan. The neurotoxicity, which is the one that killed the rats the most? The macrocyclics. Oh. By far. I'm trying to think why that may be. Why it is isn't as concerning as that it is, and that almost nobody knows about that. So I'm just saying that we have to, I'm bringing out a point, we have to recognize, this is the key, the relative safety of as initially administered, together intact with its ligand molecule, versus, put that down, versus a completely water-insoluble form, versus associating with a macromolecule. We don't have a clue. You understand, not a clue. Are any of them unsafe? And if they are, is anyone more or less unsafe? We have no idea. 
I can tell you that direct neurotoxicity of the macrocyclics, oh, we've known since 1995, it's worse than the linears, Magnavist and Omniscan by Dr. Vogler and his paper and his coworkers. Now, having said that, yeah. time for a story. Yeah. <laughs> it's always time for a story with me. Back in 19, none of your business, I was sitting there learning. It was 1982. I was in my first rotations in radiology. And um, a new imaging modality had arrived recently to Pittsburgh. You don't want to be saying anything right about now if you fear for your life. This new imaging modality was called CT, a new test. I remember when they delivered the first head CT, it only did heads, head CT scanner was delivered to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and to our university, to our institution. Anyway, so now it's 1982 and we're scanning with a relatively new test and I'm out there learning about it and they show me a head CT, it was really cool. You can see cross-sectional anatomy, wonderful. They get to our second or third patient and finally I, the third patient shows up. I said, what the heck is that? And my attending said, what? And I'm pointing at the image and I said, that. And he goes, oh man, you scared me, it's nothing. I said, well, well, what is it? It was these white blobs on the, on the image in the head CT. And he said, that's nothing. It's calcification of the basal ganglia. In my vast experience, this was my third case already, in my life. <laughs> in my vast experience, I had never seen calcification of the basal ganglia. Right. So I said, wait a minute. First of all, why are there calcifications right. in the basal ganglia? And second of all, the other two patients that I've seen in my life didn't have calcifications in the basal ganglia. Why did they not have it? And why does this guy have calcifications in his basal ganglia? And I remember the answer like it was yesterday. He said, Manny, don't be a moron. It's more normal. Move on. <laughs> like it was yesterday. <laughs> don't be a moron. It's normal. Move on. Calcium, as you know, is a metal. Metals, all metals, seem to love basal ganglia, right? Calcium goes to basal ganglia. Gadolinium goes to basal ganglia. Iron goes to basal ganglia. Manganese goes to basal ganglia. Why? I'm 63 years old. I have no idea. We don't even mention it in the report. I don't say, oh, this patient has calcium in the basal. It's a normal finding. Move on. It may be that eight years from now, they're going to say, oh, didn't they realize? I can't believe they ever thought it was normal. Holy cow. Everybody with basal ganglia calcification <laughs> grows a third arm, but they didn't make the association until now. Okay, fine. But right now, right. we don't even mention it. It's just... What should I say, precipitating out? It's just insoluble. Yeah. So I can make an argument if you want. This is purely as an argument. I have zero data. An argument could be made that maybe the water insoluble form is it's normal, move on. If it's water insoluble, that means it's less reactive with water, right? Right. What are you worried about? It just sits hey, there forever. Yeah, so like calcium, maybe it's not a problem. And only the one. linears, you know, the more dangerous ones, according to so many people. Right. Only the linears seem to show the water insoluble form. All I'm saying is that we have such dogmatic statements that we're making 
And I'm intentionally playing devil's advocate because I have no clue which is safer, if any of them is safer, if any of them has any safety issue. All I know is there is residual gadolinium. And a lot of people seem to be awfully confident about which one they do and do not prefer. But we don't have the science behind us to back whether there's any safety issues associated with this residuum or not, let alone the subtypes that might be there from the different agents that we might administer. Right. If I had my druthers, I don't want any gadolinium in my body that's not supposed to. I don't want any metals in my body that aren't supposed to be there. So, of course, I would like to use as little as possible. To the extent that the agents are interchangeable, just use the one that leaves the least. That was the argument of Europe. The Europeans had a Pharmacovigilance Risk Assessment Committee, PRAC. And the formal recommendation from PRAC was these agents are essentially interchangeable. And since they are, why would you possibly use one that leaves more? Let's get rid of the linear agents. And for practical purposes, that's exactly what happened in Europe and it's binding. So in Europe, the linear agents essentially are no longer in use, and they've lost their marketing ability. You can't, you can't use them. You can't sell them. In most of the rest of the world, they did not agree, including and especially in the United States, they did not agree. And certainly, they did not agree that the agents are the same. There are massive differences in, in areas such as relaxivity, in areas such as adverse events, and areas of even some simple things such as their osmolalities and their viscosities. And we, we recognize that there are differences amongst these agents. And we treat them as if they're drugs, as if they are prescription drugs. And which one you use is based on what that patient needs. So today, Yes, we recognize that there can be residual gadolinium. We have no idea if it is or isn't a safety issue. Just in case, we'd like to use as little as possible. We recognize that the macrocyclics tend to use tend to leave less than the linears, and inside the macrocyclics and inside the linears, there are differences in how much they give they leave. But that there are also differences amongst the agents. If you are looking for relaxivity today, the highest relaxivity is a linear agent. If you're looking for adverse events, I think arguably the lowest adverse event, immediate adverse event, the lowest adverse events would be amongst the linear agents today. So we treat them like the prescription drugs that they are and a decision as to which one to, whether to use it, which one to use and how much to administer should be made on a patient by patient basis based on the needs and specific clinical scenario of that patient. Well, I'm curious. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you probably don't reveal this, but if you have a preference on what gadolinium, um, it's okay to say you don't want to. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. Um, that would be exactly the same as asking me. The patient comes into the ER, and I um, look at them and I say, "You have an infection. I'm going to write you a prescription for an antibiotic." And I write the prescription, and I hand it to them. And they go to the pharmacist to fill it. And the pharmacist looks at him, picks up the phone and calls me and says, I'm having trouble reading your handwriting. It looks like it says, give this patient an antibiotic. And I said, yeah, that's what I wrote. And the pharmacist says, well, which one? And I say, what do you mean? Just give them an antibiotic. They're all the same. My preference is determined by the patient. I like us to make believe we're physicians and I like to make believe that these are prescription drugs. And I like to make believe that we can match what's best for the patient in the clinical scenario that they're provided me with. 
as opposed to saying that every patient has to get the same drug, it just doesn't seem to, that's what Europe said. Europe said they're interchangeable. Just give them an antibiotic. Well, so is that something that's in, like, is protocol before the patient comes? What contrast is given? Absolutely. I'm in a different scenario. I'm the chief of the Division of Emergency Radiology. So every one of my patients, nobody gets injected without my knowledge. Every single one of my patients I get a call about before they're injected, and then I decide if I want them to be injected and how much and which, which agent if they will be injected. So for us, it's a real-time evaluation on every ER patient. Hey. Do you keep an equal amount of uh, linear macrophilics, depending on the case? We have linears. We have uh, macrocyclics. We have personal preferences of physicians, which is exactly how the practice of medicine works. When you ask somebody to write a prescription for an antibiotic, they write what they're most comfortable with, the ones that they're most familiar with, that they've been using for the longest time. They know it's effective. They know it's adverse events. There may be competitors for that one, but if they're comfortable with that, then they want to use that one. That's wonderful. That's exactly why the art and science of medicine works the way it does. We want you using what you're comfortable with and that you, as you think you have a good handle on. Well, that's as an ordering physician, but as a radiologist reading those images, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to have more of a say-so, more of an influence of what contrast is given? It's a fascinating question. Um, as somebody who started out in surgery, then went into medicine, uh, then went into radiology, this is my patient. Right. I don't want to say so. I want all to say so. This is my patient. So I want complete control over what I think is best for my patient, and I want to discuss it with my patient, and that patient and I will determine what's best for them. The more anyone else tries to butt into that, the more frustrated I personally would be. But I recognize the reality of the world. The reality of the world has many, many limitations placed on that scenario. The biggest one is um, the Stark Amendments. The Stark Amendments were passed years and years ago for good reason, if you don't mind my editorializing, and they were anti-kickback. The Stark Amendments was essentially state that any physician, it's not radiology, it's any physician, no physician can financially benefit from a test that they order. No physician can financially benefit from a test that they order for their patients. I think you need an upper GI. Luckily, I happen to have a scope. Let me do it on you. <laughs> They're concerned about the potential conflict of interest that maybe I'll order if I could earn money by ordering a test. If I have a, a system that will analyze blood work, blood chemistries, I might order a lot of blood chemistries on patients that maybe perhaps might not need them so that I can do them in my lab and I'll feel like I'm doing good medicine, but at the same time, maybe it's not really indicated and somebody else wouldn't have done it and I'm being somehow swayed by the potential profit of having the machine and charging for it. So there's a, the Stark Amendments do not permit a physician to benefit from a test financially from a test that they themselves order. I can order an upper GI and send them to you and you can perform the upper GI. As long as there's no financial relationship between us, that's of course the practice of medicine and that's fine. As a result of the Stark Amendments, a radiologist cannot order contrast on their patients because a contrast-enhanced examination reimburses more and I would financially benefit than an unenhanced study. So ironically, the biggest expert in the hospital as to what how to use these tests is the radiologist because they are the imagers. Right. But since they can financially benefit, they've been cut off. And we have to pick up the phone and call daddy. Hello, referring physician. Your patient needs a 
contrast-enhanced study because I think this is an abscess. Can you please order contrast so that I can give contrast and be and bill for it and be reimbursed for it because that's what is appropriate for your patient? Sure, Manny, I'd be glad to. So that has been, it's an unfortunate necessary evil of the Star Commitment. And so what would I like to do and what I can do are two different things. So today, a referring physician who may not know how to spell MRI is the one that has to order not just the MRI, but the contrast. Which one, what dose, what rate, what route can I repeat it? Do they have kidney, do they know anything about any of this? It's not their specialty, it's mine. Why would you possibly expect them to? You don't. But because of the legal issue of the Stark Amendment, they have to order the test and I have to implement it. Unfortunately, what's happened over the years is that in my opinion, most radiologists have divorced themselves from the execution of the exam. For most of radiology in the United States, by the time that patient's study is completed, when I get that patient's study, that patient's already out of the room. When the average, not me, Manny, the average radiologist, when they see the CT scan, the study's done. Nobody asked them, did you want contrast and how much and what dose and what concentration and what route and what rate? That's not up to you. That's been done by now. So conceptually, we have, in a sense, divorced ourselves from the patient care. And as long as nobody gets hurt, that's fine. But if there's ever a problem, that's when we find out that somebody is going to be responsible for the safe execution of that exam, not right. just its interpretation. Well, I had a question on... Uh, different types of contrast when it comes to like paramagnetic and then there's the ferromagnetic you know contrast which kind of felt like it was picking up steam but I haven't really heard anything about any of that in a while and I was wondering if you know a lot of the stuff that's coming out with um, you know gap retention is kind of pushing you know the advancement of that kind of back a little bit sure so well, if we talk about um, x-ray based studies how does an x-ray based study work we shine an x-ray at a patient and some of the x-rays are absorbed or deflected or reflected. What is doing the absorbing, the reflecting, the deflecting? A massive simplification of that would be electrons. We talk about density. The greater the density, the wider it is on the image. Density means concentration per volume. Concentration of what? It ends up being essentially electrons. The greater the number of electrons in this cubic centimeter, the wider that cubic centimeter will be projected on that image. Does that make sense? Right. So we develop this thing called contrast agents for X-ray based studies. What are they? Every contrast agent that you could possibly name, quick, name a bunch of them, as many as you can. Not brand names, but types. Oh. You can brand names too if you don't mind, but just quick, <laughs> as many as you can, just spit them out. Spit them out. Um, like contrast agents? Like how general? Like oral, IV? There's Gastrographin, there's uh, iodine base, there's barium, there's yeah. aircon, there's air. So what are what do they oh, all yeah. share in common? Contrast, like literally contrast within the image itself. How does barium share anything in common with iodine or air? Right. They're all identical in one thing. What is it that they're changing? Uh, image contrast. Electron density. Electron density. Yeah. When I inject into you an iodine an iodine based contrast agent. I'm injecting electrons. And they biodistribute. If it's an extracellular fluid agent, it biodistributes in the extracellular fluid. And so the entire extracellular fluid is going to get more dense. I'm introducing physical 
electrons. If I tell you to swallow barium, I am now making the density of your GI lumen higher. Right. Do you understand? That's what yes, it is. So the contrast agent for any X-ray-based study is changing the only thing X-rays detect, essentially, electron density. What is it? What tissue property are X-rays probing? It says, oh, this tissue is going to be really dense. We're going to make it white, a rib. This tissue is really not dense, lung. We're going to make it really black on the image. What is the difference in two? Electron density. So if I do anything to change the one thing that modality can detect, I have myself a contrast agent. I could make it higher, barium, iodine, gastrographin. I could make it lower, air. But if you change the electron density, your, your machine, your tool, X-ray, has the ability to detect that. So you could, a, a contrast agent has to change the tissue parameter this test is probing. Now they have contrast agents for ultrasound. Well, ultrasound, what are you talking about? Ultrasound <laughs> is echogenicity. There you go, you just did it, right? Right. The contrast agent is changing echogenicity. It's introducing echoes, how? Microbubbles. So it's changing the one single tissue parameter that it can detect. And what is it that it's detecting? Echogenicity. What's happening in MRI, though, is different. Why is it different? Because in MRI, we're not detecting one single parameter. What is it that MRI is detecting? What is the tissue property being probed by the MR scanner? Oh, yeah, the precession, yeah. The precession well, of the hydrogen atom, It's right? T1. T1, yeah. Oh, yeah, T1 relaxation. And it's also T2. Wait, and it's proton density. And it's T2 star. And it's diffusion, and it's perfusion, and it's susceptibility. There are a dozen. <laughs> Every time we turn around, the industry introduces another tissue parameter that the same exact physical machine hardware can now probe and detect. Do you understand? I can use the MR scanner to detect your temperature. I can see that this tissue is warmer than that based on how I adjust the buttons. Do you understand? So MRI is not a one-trick pony like ultrasound. It's not a one-trick pony like CT or X-ray-based studies. So what is a potential contrast agent for MRI? For CT, you change electron density. For ultrasound, you change echogenicity. For MRI, it's magnetic properties. you change anything, <laughs> anything huh? that this machine can detect, and you got yourself a potential contrast agent. You can change T1 or T2 or T2 star or diffusion or perfusion. You can change susceptibility. You can change proton density, any of these or any combination. And you got yourself a contrast agent. So until now, the whole industry Damn, has been focused tough. on the one contrast agent. That's essentially 100% of what we use. And what is that? Gadolinium. Right. And that's predominant T1 shortening. There are perfusion-weighted studies, for example, are typically looking at susceptibility weighting grossly changing the strength of a magnetic field. So we could do that with gadolinium. But of course, of course, the extreme majority of gadolinium usage is T1 shortening, making things glow in the dark on T1 weighted images. But then people started to get a little bit turned off by gadolinium. Every time I turn around, there's something else here. I don't like NSF. I don't like residual gadolinium. <laughs> this guy had an anaphylactic reaction. To heck with this. Let's use something else. Right. So there is a lot of discussion about other things that can be used. And yes, you're right. There are some agents that are 
super paramagnetic or ferromagnetic, and yet people have used from from day one. They've used um, iron. People, you can detect an iron pill an hour after she she swallows it. Three hundred and twenty-five milligrams of iron in the GI tract, and it can still leave you a nice artifact. You can take iron. Just drink drinks that have iron in it. You'll see it. Blueberry juice we can see in MRI. So there's so many things that we can see that are not necessarily T1 shortening. It could be anything that changes T1 or T2 or T2 star or susceptibility or proton density, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are discussions about moving to other agents. And yeah, there are articles being published about them. Um, there have been articles, I don't know if you know this, there was an, a contrast agent that was FDA-approved, Feridex. Oh, GEs, right? And either of you ever use Feridex? Right. 100% FDA-approved, it was iron oxide. What is iron oxide? Iron oxide is rust. Feridex was iron oxide, two to three microns in size. And if you remember from biology and histology and some of the initial work that you guys have done when you were learning about how contrast agents work, things that are two or three microns in size, the reticuloendothelial system of the body swallows them up and filters them. So where are the reticuloendothelial system in the body? It's in the spleen. It's in the bone marrow. So when Faradex was given, it's essentially iron. When it was given and that size, it would biodistribute in such a way that the reticuloendothelial system would take it up. The liver would take it up. The spleen would take it up. The bone marrow would take it up. And so what would happen if the guy, God forbid, had liver mets, wherever there was a metastasis, there was not normal reticuloendothelial cells. So the whole liver is going to turn black because of the iron except where, the, where there's a hole three-dimensionally of lack of reticuloendothelial cells, it was a tremendously sensitive marker for metastases. So that's another contrast. It's 100% FDA approved. We had Tesla scan. It was manganese-based, if I remember correctly. Faradex we no longer use. It was taken off the market. One of the reasons was that one out of 200, one out of 200 had a life-threatening anaphylactic reaction. Not one out of 20,000, one out of 200, one half of 1% had anaphylactic reactions, anaphylactoid reactions too. So it didn't ever really catch on, but it was FDA approved. That's another type of contrast agent. So will there be others? Others are pursuing manganese-based agents today. This is just my opinion. I don't believe that they will fare well. I believe that manganese-based agents are going to, it's jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. If you don't like residual gadolinium, are you going to like residual manganese? Because we know that that happens too. If you look up in the, in the literature, you'll find that welders, welders have problems with excess manganese. And they have, it's not that it's, they have residual manganese, and it's also in the basal ganglia as it's a metal. And it has T1 shortening. But it is associated with some pretty substantial symptomatology. Residual gadolinium, we're trying to figure out, is that harmful in any way? We don't know. It might be. It might not be. We have to study this. Residual manganese, that's excess manganese in the body? Oh, yeah, that's toxicity. We know for sure that that's abnormal and that causes disease and problems and symptoms. So from my point of view, I'm not convinced that we're going to be jumping from gadolinium into manganese. Right. But it's just an opinion. And, and no, I, sure. I certainly don't know what it'll be. It's just 
it's not where I would recommend placing my research efforts right now. Nice. Well, I know there's information out there, and I know that, like, the Chuck Norris case brought light to it, um, to the mainstream. I had just yesterday a patient was asking me about it. They had concerns. Like, what message would you give to patients, like, who are due to have contrast? That might be concerned. That's a wonderful question. There's, I think what you're bringing up is the concept of, um, some have named a disease, gadolinium deposition disease and others and they have also said there's another situation which they're willing to call gadolinium deposition condition this is just my opinion it doesn't make it right Um, I believe it's premature I don't believe we have objective sufficient data to be able to say that at this stage I do know that there are patients hundreds maybe over a thousand that feel that their life has been destroyed by gadolinium administration I've spoken with dozens of them in detail. And I will say that me personally, I am impressed with some of these patients that there is something going on that I don't understand. But we have, there's no other way to say it. We have hundreds of millions of patients who have gotten gadolinium that have not had this disease. So there's a, there's a huge amount here we just don't understand. I agree with the FDA's conclusion so far, which is that so far we have no reproducible data of harm. It doesn't mean that it's safe, and it doesn't mean that there won't be, and it doesn't mean that there will be. It means exactly what it says. So far, we don't have reproducible data that there is harm from this residual gadolinium. Europe, which pulled the linears off the market, agrees to that statement. They said out of an abundance of caution, why wait for there to be demonstrated harm? Let's take them off because they're all interchangeable anyway, which we disagree with. So from the point of view of is there harm, I can't answer the question. I can say that there's no controlled data that I'm aware of that shows that is there, there is harm and it's dose-related and it's from the gadolinium. I can't really show that. I'm afraid that I just think it's too premature. It doesn't mean that there aren't patients that don't feel that way. It means that I can't make the positive association yet. And, and in that area, I would have to agree with the FDA that hasn't yet been demonstrated. But it needs to be studied. What would I tell the patient? I tell the patient exactly what I was raised to tell the patient. There are potential benefits and risks to anything we do in life. I believe that you need this drug, or I would not be advising that you get it, If this is my family member on the table, I would be recommending that we proceed with this study. But you have to make the decision as to how you decide whether you want or not want to have this drug. The FDA has mandated medication guides. And it's a long story. We don't have time to go into great detail. But medication guides, essentially, they're saying an outpatient, for the first time she or he receives these drugs, any of them, if they got this drug, but they never got that one, then if they're going to get that one next time, they need to get another medication guide for that one. The first time they get any of these drugs, we must distribute. Who's we? I believe it's the pharmacist that's not important for right now. That patient has to be handed a medication guide. And on that medication guide, it explains to the patient that some will be left in the body. We don't know if it's harmful. We don't know if it's going to be an issue. We're going to check your renal function before you give it to you and make sure that, it's, that you're able to get this drug as safely as we can. In the discussion of the medication guides, I am an SGE. I'm a special government employee. I, I work for the FDA as a consultant, as an advisor in, in two areas, MRI safety as also contra- and also contrast age safety, two different, entirely different unrelated divisions. 
Drugs and Contrast Media on one side and CDRH, Center for Device and Radiologic Health, on the other. I fed back formally that I was opposed to the medication guide before they said it was law. I was opposed right. to it because I was afraid that patients that really needed contrast would turn it down Opt out, yeah. because you're scaring them off. Right. They were very open to that feedback, and they said, well, we'd be interested now that we're going to implement it anyway. Let's, I'd be interested in feedback. So at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, I did formally follow a few thousand patients that we gave, to whom we gave the medication guide. And I asked for formal, prospective, I want to know how many of our patients are turning it down. Out of a few thousand patients, we had 18 patients that turned it down. So in retrospect, I was wrong. It is not causing, at least in our institution and in our experience, that's multiple, multiple hospitals in my institution, for several thousand patients, it did not cause a mass exodus. We did not have huge opposition to getting contrast. And in retrospect, it probably was a perfectly appropriate thing to do without causing harm to the patients. And they're now more aware what to do with it. The medication guy says, we have no idea what to do with it. We just thought we would let you know. Right. So what it sounds like is that we don't really still know anything definitive, but what we do know is they can't duplicate or reproduce that harm, I guess. We don't know for sure of any harm that has resulted. There are a lot of complaints of different types of things, and the things that they complain about, there's nothing objective. It's always subjective. It's things that cannot be objectively quantified. Pain is a perfect example. Forgetfulness brain fog, haze, my memory's not. These are things that are very difficult for us to objectively quantify. It doesn't, it, mean, it just makes it more frustrating and difficult, yeah, that's all. that's tough. Well, I know there's a lot of questions out there from all angles. We've got patients out there who are curious about this subject. Yeah. We've got uh, ordering physicians, radiologists, techs. Um, so it's, it's important to put that information out there. Um, I'm curious, though, you said that like patients with renal failure are at, at risk. Is there any other patients, like, for example, maybe like a transplant patient or something like that? So the Pregnancy. question, uh, that's one of the, the most common things we hear now is be careful on patients that are especially at risk. So whenever I hear that, I feel compelled to say at risk for what? <laughs> because we don't know what they're at risk for. Do you right. understand? Exactly. What we're saying is if there is harm who is more likely to experience that harm is somebody who's going to get a lot of drug or a lot of studies over time high dose like ms patient so there we can now show you categories ms patients typically are handled with contrast very frequently in fact we made a presentation to the national ms society and they agreed as a result of that presentation to change their formal recommendation their formal oh, recommendation wow. was you're getting a contrast enhanced study every year whether you have symptoms or not that's changed they were very open to well we're not sh not that it's harmful it's that we don't know and if we don't know why take a chance let's back off so MS patients are a perfect example of patients that are likely to get contrast studies more often and would be exposed to a potential risk of what we're not sure. Children, somebody can come in there, a child can come in with a low-grade astrocytoma, you can take it out and even using the actual definition of the word, perhaps cure them. But you know they're going to get, for the first few years, multiple times a year, and maybe once a year for the rest of their life, they're going to get a contrast-enhanced study. Kids six years old, another example. Another one which I, I'd like to point out specifically is women with um, being screened that they're at high risk for breast cancer. 
I say that, and this is not a popular way of saying it, but I'm going to put it this way anyway to make a point. Well, technically, they're not even patients, right? We're screening them so that they don't become patients. These right. are just citizens that we're giving contrast true. to. Yeah. And if they're high risk, we're going to do it again and again and again and again. And they don't even have a disease. So they're another one that's a potential population at risk for we're not sure for what. But if there is a problem, that's a population that might be exposed to a lot of it. So we've gone out of our way as an industry to try to identify who are the most likely populations to see a lot of contrast. I was always super And maybe curious. be careful how we administer to them. I was always curious about the breastfeeding because I, I, everything that I read talked about how small the dose that the baby would get. Um, but yet there are, there's still policies out there about that. Well, when it comes to breastfeeding, the, the, we have a few generalizations we could make, but it's really based on adults, and you'll hear in a moment. The, if I took a bottle of gadolinium and asked you to drink it, we would recover approximately 100% of what you drank in the feces. It would come out in the stool, essentially 100% unabsorbed. Now that is, I grant you, adult normal GI tracts. Uh, Keep that in mind. Right. Second of all, if I take a breastfeeding mother and I inject a full dose of contrast into her, Less than 1% of what I injected will make it into her breast milk. And then the kid's going to drink it. So if the child's GI tract is similar to an adult GI tract, less than 1% of what I gave the mother is going to make it into the milk. And less than 1% of what he drinks is going to make it absorbed through his GI tract. So the, and if the kid himself needed contrast, I would inject it right into him. Oh, right. So what we actually tell our patients is that we have zero, zero, not small. We have zero medical indication to stop breastfeeding. But we recognize that a breastfeeding mom is going to be extremely careful almost all the time. There's going to be a hyper level of carefulness there. And we say to them, if you yourself want to not breastfeed, for whatever reason, it's not my business, it's your business. We would suggest that you recognize that within 24 to 36 hours, for sure, 90 plus percent, 95 plus percent of what we've injected is going to be out of your body. So probably if you're going to stop breastfeeding, maybe 24, 36 hours tops is what you might want to consider. But we're not even, we do not recommend that you stop breastfeeding. We don't believe there's any medical reason to, to make such a recommendation. Nice. it's awesome. Really, really great information. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> one question we'd like to ask all of our patients to kind of wrap it up. I think it might be a fun question for you. I'm curious, what would you say has been the most like defining, most fulfilling moment in your healthcare career? Wow. What is the most defining or fulfilling moment in my healthcare career? You want us to get your wife on the phone? There have been a, she'll know. <laughs> <laughs> there have been a few, but they all have this one thing in common. I'll use one to illustrate. Uh, I had a 30-something-year-old male who, um, a stoic, who came into the hospital and said, I don't feel good. And he ends up, he has no physician. He's never gone to a doc. He's one of these mountain men kind of guy from West Virginia. And um, within 12 hours, he's comatose. He's got MRIs up the wazoo. He's got everything done. Everything's negative, negative, negative. Um, he was written off. And they were preparing to, he was, they were preparing for autopsy. 
and they showed me a, the images, and one of the sets of images was, had been read as normal, but the flare was actually extremely abnormal. It was symmetrically abnormal. The entire CSF was grossly abnormal. Plus, there was something in the in the vermis. So I, I thought that he had encephalitis and rhombencephalitis. So I thought that he may have listeria. And so we discussed with the neurology service that we should put him on antibiotics for listeria. And I'm not going to go into the detail. They didn't want to. And they, in fact, there was a note on the chart that they had spinal tap times three that was negative. And so infectious disease did not think he had that. But I said, I'm not asking. I'm telling you. We can, I'm looking at the images. It's as abnormal as can possibly be. They answered, well, we're going to find out shortly. And I didn't understand. I said, what do you mean? And they said, at post, at, at autopsy. And um, fast forward, I convinced them to, um, this guy needs antibiotics. And so they started antibiotics that night. The next morning, he woke up. That was a Saturday morning. On Sunday morning, he signed out against right. medical advice. And Sunday morning, he said, um, I have to leave. They said, no, you should understand. You, you're, you're, you're dying. You still need antibiotics. He, he said, I miss three days of work. <laughs> and he's, he said, I'm out of here. He agreed to have a visiting nurse come to the house at night and give him IV antibiotic because he left. And he came back two weeks later, and the flare is back to normal. Wow. And what I love about that, radiology saved his life. I mean, you can literally, we did that in surgery. So any situation where you know it saved his life, but what made that different from any time I did it in surgery or any time anything like that happened in medicine, he has no idea I even exist. Right. <laughs> Dang, that's so real. Yeah. There's no knowledge. Yeah. You're not doing There's no way you can say you did it for the money. You didn't do right. it for the, for the, that he owes you. He doesn't even know you're alive and that there's this human being out there walking around because you helped. Yeah. Wow. I think that's the defining moment for every physician I've ever met. It's amazing. Is to have somebody. I think that's one of the best back. answers we've gotten. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I, that's actually, that answer is the reason why we asked that question. Um, so what a, that's a great answer yeah. thank you awesome and story. thank you for joining us I think we're going to wrap it up we're kind of getting to the end of our uh, studio time but um, thank you again Dr. Canal. we really appreciate your time we really appreciate you coming and talking with us and talking to our audience we it's my pleasure it. thank you for inviting me yeah, yeah. <laughs> hanging um, out with us in zone 3 yeah. <laughs> any excuse to come visit Pittsburgh we love it here so um, thanks again for having us thanks again for watching we're Zone 3 Podcast make sure to subscribe we're trying to get to a thousand subscribers yes and uh, I guess that's it right Zone 3 Podcast we're Ray, out do you have anything to say I think we're good we're out thank you for watching bye bye